We're in the book of Nehemiah in the last chapter, chapter 13, at our series of the re-life of uh, God's kingdom. And today we start to round, uh, wind up with this magnificent book this week and next week. And uh, this is an exciting book. I just love going through this. So here we go. We're going to dive into Nehemiah yet again. Let's listen to God's word. Starting verse 1, uh, Nehemiah reports on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elishev had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah began, brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurer of the storehouses, Shelah, that guy, the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. The word of God coming from a living God speaking to us today. You may be seated. Sometimes things just start smelling bad. In March 1994, a German tourist checked into a hotel near Miami International Airport. He settled into a nice, tidy room and and readied himself for a night's rest. However, as the night progressed uh, and he began to settle into bed, he noticed a foul odor in the room. Knowing that travelers must sometimes put up with inconveniences and discomforts, he decided to sleep in his bed anyway without complaint. When he woke up the next morning, he found the odor was only worse. So, 
A couple hours later, as he checked out of the hotel, he reported the odor to those who ran the hotel. And on Friday, March the 11th of 1994, a maid cleaning the room discovered the source of the odor. Underneath the bed was a dead human body. Now, the shocking thing at first was the odor, but the more shocking thing is that at least one hotel, uh, uh, or rather a user of the hotel, uh, one guest, as well as the uh, people who'd been cleaning through the days, had effectively ignored the smell of death. Well, the truth is that all of us have this very high capacity to ignore things when they are out of sorts, even in a community setting. That includes even the smell of death. And guys, that's exactly what we're about in Nehemiah chapter 13 today, where we find the people of God in Nehemiah in a place of, as a community, living together, where they're ignoring the smell of death in their very midst. And you've got to ask, how did we get here in this book? After all, Nehemiah had been doing so much in the community of God amongst the Jews and rebuilding the city and turning it into a holy city with holy people for so long. How do we get to a place where we're going to see the smell of death everywhere? Well, our text tells us in verse 6 today that after 12 years of serving as a Persian governor in Jerusalem, sent by Artaxerxes, the great king, and after doing extraordinary stuff as a leader where God blessed his work along with the people, Nehemiah finally returned to Babylon to meet up with his boss, the great superpower king, Artaxerxes. Now remember, back in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, Artaxerxes had let Nehemiah go to Jerusalem and leave the court of which he was a part as a counselor of Artaxerxes, as a cupbearer in particular. But he said, you got to promise to come back. When are you coming back? And so, sure enough, Nehemiah carried through on his promise as a man of integrity and returned back to uh, King Artaxerxes. And our text says he did that for some time. We don't know how long it was. It might have been years. We're not real sure. But verse 7 goes on to say that Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem after his leave of absence. And what did he find when he got there? Did he find a thriving city? A city of God's people who are on an amazing upward trajectory of growth and spirituality following God? Nope, not even close. (laughs) He found a mess, a mess of corruption of downright sin from the top levels of leadership within the community of Jerusalem all the way down to the rank and file amidst the people of the day. It was for, um, in many ways, it was for Nehemiah like walking in a room with the smell of death everywhere. Of course, this was disturbing to Nehemiah as it would be to us. Uh, and he couldn't ignore how his ho- the holy city that they had been working to build, to rebuild in many ways, was actually going the wrong way. So what did Nehemiah do about it? Well, in chapter 13 today, we're going to see some, some important things. One general strategy and four, well, I'm going to highlight four of five 
specific changes or reforms that uh, Nehemiah does uh, in the city of Jerusalem in this time. So, uh, the first thing that he get that we're going to deal with today is the general strategy that Nehemiah uses, not just in this chapter, but really has been the theme throughout the whole book. And that general strategy is reform. Reform. This has been Nehemiah's way of handling God's people all along. He takes something, he changes it to the way it's supposed to be. Now, how did they know in the city, even how did Nehemiah know the way things were supposed to be? We'll look at verse 1 in our text. It says this, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found that, uh, written that no Ammonite or uh, Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Do you see that? The book of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is typically the way we understand the law, the Torah. They were reading from that, and they found this in, in actually in the law. So the short answer to what standard they were using to know the way things were supposed to be was the Word of God. The Word of God. In this case, the law of Moses. Now, this is the second major time in Nehemiah where uh, one of the leaders of the community stands up, starts speaking the Word of God or reading the Word of God as Ezra did back in chapter 8. And the people are faced with real issues they need to change. Now, uh, here's the principle that applies to us today and how, what that's got to do with us. When God speaks in His Word... When God gives directions to us as, as our king, it normally results in change, reform. When we study the Word of God as a church, even in our private times, get in the Word of God, it is living and active, a two-edged sword that will do business on us if it's handled properly in the Spirit. This is an important uh, realization for us. That when God speaks, we are called to act. Uh, we are called to respond in faith in particular, but in action nonetheless. But here's the thing about the Word of God. If you haven't already discovered this, you'll discover it more. The great truths of the Word of God not only do surgery on us once, but they keep doing surgery on us, constantly cutting on us and building us and confronting us in many cases with our need for Christ and our need for God's grace. That's the part about Christianity that is sometimes surprising when you're saved by grace through faith. It's an amazing experience, but then you realize, wow, I need to get saved again. Oh, you're not saved once, you're saved once and for all, but you get saved in sanctification over and over and over again. God's always working on our hearts. And in the flow of Nehemiah's story, we see this very thing happening not only individually, but also in community, where the Word of God actually changes them over and over again. Did you notice that as they made all these changes uh, in early parts of the book, all the way up even to chapter 13, that there was tremendous progress? But when Nehemiah left, they went back to worldliness. This gets to the principle of how not only are we changed, but we're being changed by Christ constantly 
as a community. The Reformation Church described that as in a fancy Latin term, semper reformanda, which means always reforming. We are reformed and always reforming individually in our lives, even as the church together. We are called, in other words, to always pull out the Word of God and to do the business of listening to God's Word and seeing how we're doing in community together and make appropriate changes in repentance. And by the way, the repentance is not just individually, but also corporately. And usually beginning with a leadership like me. So, this is an amazing thing that um, Nehemiah is writing in our text. He is talking about in this text, as we see through other parts of the Bible, he's talking about the junk, the crap that the church of that time in the Old Testament was bringing to the table. Now, why is that important? Well, In our age, we are in the age of marketing and branding and spin, where you always present the best face. You always present what's really good. But as you read about the church throughout Scripture, it's usually presenting the junk. The things you're going, really? They're dealing with that? Wow. That's the way we come to the world, is bringing our holiness, no doubt, But even being honest about our brokenness, that's what's so refreshing about this text. How few groups of people are honest about their own issues as an entire group. So here's the question for us that we need to think about in our church for days and weeks and months to come. What are our issues together? What is our junk that Jesus needs to reform In fact, I would submit to you, that's the beauty of following Christ, is He is our reformer. He makes all things new in our lives. He's the one who calls us to something new very regularly. When He says, come follow me, He does call us to a life of dying. Dying to what we want and learning to be made alive to what He wants in our lives. Not just individually, but together. What are our issues? We need to talk about that sometimes. So, Nehemiah was about ongoing reform so that the people of God would become a people always reforming. In 1996, the auto industry celebrated its 100th birthday in America, and the Chicago Tribune selected 10 cars that made major differences in the car industry, and really how we do transportation. Some of them you maybe have never heard of, some you have. I'm going to list just five of them for uh, time's sake. Did you know in in 1896, the Duryea, I can't even say the word, motor wagon, was the first car that had multiple cars made from the same design. Did you know before that, they were making every car was unique. There was no uniform design. In 1908, Henry Ford developed the Model T, which was the first mass-produced car on the road. In 1941, Willie's Jeep was designed for World War II. It was the first sport utility vehicle in America. In 1953, 
The Chevrolet Corvette, my personal favorite, was manufactured as the first real muscle car. And in 1994, the Chrysler minivan replaced the station wagon as the people's choice of the family car. Notice how distinct changes, strategic changes, resulted in kind of a grand change in how we do transportation in our cars. Well, that's what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 13. Is he's about reforming the city that had fallen off the wagon into worldliness, but he makes strategic changes. I mean, he probably came back and there were millions of things he could have changed, but he chose five things in our text in chapter 13. We're only going to do with four of them. Daryl will deal with the fifth one next week. And these five specific changes affected the holiness of the entire community, their spiritual walk with God, with each other. That's the intent behind it. So, what does he do? What, was the first, what were the major changes that he made for the community? Well, the first specific change was making a spiritual difference between Jews and other religious groups. Look at verse uh, 2 and 3. It says that after they read the word, they found that writ- written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now, that's a great gospel point. Remember that? Uh, these groups, when uh, the people were wandering in the desert back uh, with Moses, they met uh, Moses and the people of God and resisted them coming near the promised land, yet God delivered them, even though they were cursed by their own prophets like Balaam. Now, the amazing thing about what's going on in our text is that if you read this closely... And if you're paying attention with kind of cultural ears right now, you might read this and be a little disturbed by what's going on. Apparently, there's what seems to be some kind of ethnic separation in our text. At first glance, this looks like racial profiling, even discrimination at best case. But in worst case, we could even call it ethnic cleansing. Now, what you need to understand in this is that's not what's happening in what you see going on in our world today in places like the Sudan, even racism that occurs in our nation at times. No, there's something different going on here. Did you notice they were addressing the assembly of God's people in worship? In worship. Apparently, there were pagan Ammonites and Moabites who were showing up in church with the Jews there in Jerusalem at the temple. And these very same had religious hostilities toward the Jews. That, that, that's what happened back at Deuteronomy when they first came up with this law to expunge those who had religious hostilities towards them. Deuteronomy 23 talks about it at length. As we've seen in chapters 4 and 6 of Nehemiah, the nations really, in many cases, surrounding Judah were hostile toward them and did not want them to either establish the city of Jerusalem or the regular worship of Yahweh in their midst. They were out to end it. And so what was happening in our text is they were saying, you need to exclude those people who are hostile towards our practice of our faith. It'd be like this. It'd be what's happening today in Africa 
is Christians in uh, Nigeria, for example, are worshiping, and Muslims like Boko Haram come sit into their worship with hostile intent to take them over, in some cases even kill them. This was dangerous. That's what was going on in our text. So that's why they were expunging them. Now, the question then is, how does this apply to us? Well, we live in a country, happily, where there are freedoms of religion. And we are pleased to have those who don't know Christ join us in worship on a regular basis. That's what we want, this to be a safe place for those who are exploring Christianity or even have skeptical questions. However, there is one place in church where we draw the line for participation. It's the Lord's Supper. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, you notice the pastor, like me, says something, if you're not a Christian, don't participate in the Supper. And we don't do it to be mean. We do that because that is where we draw the line. Even in this room and say, those who follow Christ, come participate. Those who don't, you need to think hard about who you're following and what your Savior, who your Savior actually is or will be. In other words, the Lord's Supper makes a clear distinction between believer and unbeliever in our midst. Now, somebody in our midst who might be culturally aware would say, well, man, that doesn't, doesn't seem fair. It's not very inclusive. Well, here's my response. Consider this. Let's imagine you and your family were at uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, which is coming up in just a few months, and all of your family there, everybody knows each other. It's a family occasion. Let's imagine someone comes off the road, walks into your house. You have nothing, you know nothing about them, and they sit at the table and start eating, and they haven't been invited. How would you feel about that? I mean, even whatever religion or worldview you have, even you would be very uncomfortable with someone inviting themselves into the family dinner. That's exactly what the Lord's Supper is. It is that family dinner time where we enjoy Christ personally in a meaningful way. Now, there is a second application that comes out of this I want to highlight. In our dealings with living in American culture, where every religion and worldview is often considered equally valid, we Christians need to be careful not to make equality a higher value than truth. Equality is a principle. It's a great thing. We should practice it in many and many great places we don't already do it. However, there are some places you don't apply the principle of equality. The truth is we as Christians are not the same as the rest of the world. And Christian truth does not harmonize with other worldviews. Christianity dares to say what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is, uh, no one come to the Father except through me. That's a pretty exclusive statement from Jesus. Jesus himself says it. Even the kind, loving Lord reminds us there are distinctions and that equality isn't everything, although it matters a great deal. Second, the second specific change in our text today in Nehemiah is in verse 4 of our text. Look at verse 4 of what it says. Now, before this, Eliashiv, this priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, the grain, the wine, the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, etc., etc., etc. 
This is a, is a, a, a problem, and it is a compromise that Eliashib, the chief priest over all the priests in the temple, commits himself. It is an abuse of power. It is an abuse of power in that the boss of all priests invites someone to actually move all the resources that people were putting in the temple and to set up shop, or really to set up a vacation home. And the guy's name who did it was Tobiah. And you're thinking, wait a minute, we've heard that name Tobiah before. We've heard about Tobiah. Well, Tobiah is mentioned in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. He's mentioned all over the book as one of the Ammonite enemy leaders who are positioning themselves against God's people. <laughs> and you're going, how did this happen? The very enemy of God's people is now living in the temple for his vacation home. The answer is, Tobiah was related to Eliashiv. He was actually a family member connected in marriage, supposedly. What Eliashiv is doing is he is practicing nepotism, which is a form of favoritism towards our own uh, family members. And what's wrong about this is he is missing the forest for the trees. He's do, he thinks he's doing a favor with a family member when he's actually inviting the enemy to be a part and to be camped out right near the temple of God's people. That's like letting Osama bin Laden vacation in a church facility. Now, what does Nehemiah do in our text? Well, verse 8 says... He gets very angry. You know, I love that language, the, the Hebrew language of very angry. You know what it actually says? His nose grew hot. You can see just his face is getting really red. That's the language of what he's doing. He, he gets really angry. And it says then he throws all of Tobiah's stuff. You can see the doors flung open. He's taking chairs and throwing them out. He's taking everything of Tobiah's and chunking it out the door. He's freaking out. Now, you got to think at this point, whew, man, is Nehemiah a rageaholic? Nope. What's happening here is this is a reaction that reflects the wrath of God. It reveals how offensive it is that he, that Tobiah, and even especially the chief priest Elisha would do, inviting this man to live as a vacation home right there in God's temple. God does not suffer fools. He doesn't. And he is not a God that we can manage or control or manipulate or even appease on our own. He is a wrathful God. And when he is wrathful, it is just anger. And some people say, well, you know, this is like some of that Old Testament stuff. I really don't like this kind of stuff we get from God in the Old Testament. And I would submit to you that really the best kind of God is the God you cannot control. The God you cannot make like you. And in this case, Nehemiah is reflecting that very thing. Now picture this. Nehemiah is in the temple, cleansing the temple, or having it cleansed by throwing things out. 
Hmm, where have we seen that before in Scripture? John chapter 2, where Jesus does the very same thing. He goes in the temple. They're using the temple to make money. It's like a mall, basically, in his time. And he goes crazy with whips, turning over the, uh, the collections, everything, as he reflects the wrath of God. Yeah, even that gentle, mild, loving Jesus who's such an amazing teacher. Yeah, he's not controllable either. He won't allow himself to be manipulated. God will purge unholiness. That is his way. He waits and he is patient at times in ways he does it, but he will purge unholiness. And he won't be manipulated. He won't be managed. And guys, he won't be used either. But what's that got to do with us, even here today? Well, First, I'd say we have to always live in the fear of the Lord. Not fear of being punished. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're cleansed by the blood of Christ, you're free and clear. But a kind of fear that says, I will honor you because you are infinitely bigger than me. You are my Lord. You are my God. I follow you, not the other way around. You're the creator. I'm the created. And within us is all this sense of honor that goes to God because he is God. Second application in this text is simply this. Sometimes you might have to make a choice between Jesus and family like Eliashib should. Sometimes Jesus brings a sword, even in our family, when there are matters of belief and unbelief. And it's hard. It's no fun. But it's real. Sometimes you will have to choose Christ over a family member and what they want from you. And that is where you learn to live in the proper fear and love of the Lord. Third, specific reform that Nehemiah made in our text today comes in verses 10 through 14. And I'll I'll be brief. Apparently in Nehemiah's absence the people as a whole started to compromise in the misuse of money and resources. They stopped tithing. And the result was the temple work wasn't getting done. The priests were uh, having to go out and work bivocationally in the fields, working as farmers. In other words, the kingdom work wasn't being properly resourced by generosity. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, if you follow Christ, a key point of lordship uh, centers around the checkbook. Will Jesus be Lord of our checkbook, our wallet, our uh, debit cards, our credit cards, our bank accounts, everything? We will be challenged when we follow Jesus to make a choice between God and a lifestyle. Our job is to choose God over a lifestyle, although sometimes we can enjoy a wonderful lifestyle. We Americans have magnificent lifestyle compared to the rest of the world. But the people in Nehemiah's day, they were choosing a lifestyle over God. And as a result, they were robbing God of what was his. You know, that's the interesting thing I read in Derek Kidner this week, is they went between two extremes as people when it came to money with God. You ready for this? 
They either tried to appease God by giving him money out of guilt, or they just robbed God just uh, taking advantage of him in some form of entitlement. Either way, that's not how we come to money as Christians. As Christians, we always start with money is a gift, a resource that is actually God's. He owns it. We are stewards of it. And as stewards, we give as he wants us to give in those resources to the various things we do, like our paying our bills, uh, even going on vacation, enjoying time away is okay. A whole host of things, yes, but even giving to the kingdom of God. Now, someone here might say, well, now, there it is. <laughs> How self-serving is it for the church to stand up and say, you should give? I'd say, yeah, I used to think that too when I was not following Jesus. I understand. But the biblical truth is this. You don't give to the church. You give to Christ. You give to him first. You start with him and his pleasure fundamentally. And the church is the means through which you give. If you start giving to church, I promise you it'll become an interaction thing where you're like, am I getting something out of my, out of my investment? Am I getting what I want out of church? I'm giving. What are they doing for me? Versus Jesus, this is yours. I'm giving to your church because you call me to. It might be at Redeemer. It might be in another church. Wherever it is, I give because I want to seek your pleasure because I love you. And this is an, one of many manifestations of my love for you. Now, some of you here today are going, man, I hate when we talk about money in church. It just makes me nervous. And I'm like, I understand. Remember these basic facts. <laughs> God gives you this much in life, whatever that is financially. The world says live right here at this place or even above. That's what the world says. But Christianity says live below your means down here. Don't buy the car that pushes you over this. Don't buy the house that puts you over this. Live under here. And that distance right there, that's freedom. That is giving. That is resting in that God is providing and you're living within your means. It's a debt. It's a debtless life rather than a life full of debt. The fourth specific change that Nehemiah makes in our text goes on in verses 15 through 22. Daryl's going to deal with the fifth one next week. But here's the gist of it. The people compromised on one thing that they regularly did together. They didn't rest. Man, we're going to talk more about this at the beginning of the year. But one of the things that is really hard in our age is learning how to stop, to cease, and to enjoy God. The whole idea of resting of Sabbath is we actually take into account the glory of God and the sovereignty of God in that he's going to take care of us today even if we're not working. What was happening in Nehemiah's time is the people had become addicted to buying and selling and they didn't feel secure enough in God and his providence so they had to constantly buy and sell. And guess what? All the merchants came in and during the Sabbath they'd be selling things like crazy. Our job as Christians, even on the Lord's Day, is to learn how to cease even the rhythms of buying and selling. Of course you can buy and sell if there's a necessity. Go for it. That's fine. But do you have to buy certain things and go shopping on the Lord's Day? 
If you say, I, my life's so full of things, I'm in such a hurry, how are you practicing the Lord's Day? Are you ceasing? Are you listening? Are you resting that God is your Father and will take care of you sovereignly? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is another way to say, remember God is good. And he's proven over and over again he's taking care of us. So here are the four reforms that we have in our text today. The four that have talked about even through uh, generosity, through power, uh, through differences in holiness. Yes, even in rest. In conclusion, sometimes plants get sickly. Sometimes they aren't healthy in their flower pots. According to plant expert types, the best thing to help plants stay healthy and to keep living is to take them out of their smaller flower pots uh, with their roots, especially if they're caught up in a bowl, and put them in a bigger pot with new dirt. When transplanting experts say that when you do this, you need to be ruthless with the roots. You need to untangle them, take all the dirt out. If, even if you rip some of the roots away, that just is what happens when you transplant something. But in the long run, the health of the plant will be better. Christ is our great gardener and our reformer. He makes all things new. He moves and shakes in your personal life, in our corporate life together as a church, and in our lives in such a way to make us more holy, to even pull out some of the bad roots. And his objective in all of this is to prepare us well for our heavenly city, our home. Don't get used to the smell of death, even in church. Follow Christ in the lasting change. It will always be good for you in an eternal sense. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you today, and when we talk about reform, it's a little scary. Because reform means change and a call to change, and it doesn't come naturally to us to want to change some things that you want us to change, and that would be true to us individually, again, as families, and, Lord, as the church. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come here, and, Lord, as you have spoken, you would call us to this new life of renewing ourselves to commitments to you, to following your word, to listening anew to your word. Blow through us, Lord Jesus, and your spirit. Change our hearts so that we get tired of the smell of death and we pursue the sweet smell of life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.